I went to the head of the Secret Service and I said, uh, Mr. Parl and I would like different names. And they're like, um, okay. And we're like, does it have to start with a P? Because all of our, our, our code names all started with P in the 44 administration. And they were like, uh, yeah, we'll come back to you with some options. So I went with Popsicle. And when it was hot out, they'd go, we have Popsicle, she's melting. Hello, hello, hello. I'm Katie Lazarus. Welcome to Employee of the Month. This is a very special episode. It is the last edition we are doing with Slate, and I'm so excited to be moving on. And I'm also excited to bring you our guest today. You can go to employeeofthemonthshow.com to get on the mailing list, and you will absolutely want to get on the mailing list um, once you hear these terrific conversations. Starting with Alyssa Mastromonaco, who was the White House Deputy Chief of Staff under President Obama. We talk all about her experience there, as well as working for Bernie Sanders. She has a terrific book called Who Thought This Was a Good Idea about what it's like to work in the White House. And she has a new book out we also speak about called So Here's the Thing, Notes on Growing Up, Growing Old, and Trusting Your Gut. In addition to Alyssa, we have Peter Gross, the Emmy Award-winning writer and actor who you either recognize his writing or you recognize him from the Colbert Report and Late Show with Stephen Colbert, as well as Late Night with Seth Meyers. He's also Mike Pence on The President Show and, of course, Veep. So without further ado, here are my interviews with Alyssa Mastromonaco and Peter Gross. I'm really thrilled to have Alyssa Mastromonaco here on Employee of the Month. Um, New York Times best-selling author, and I will say, run, don't walk to get this book. Um, who thought this was a good idea? And she has a new book out called So Here's the Thing, Notes on Growing Up, Getting Older, and Trusting Your Gut. And I only wish that I had had that book even just a year ago. So I'm so happy that you've written these two books and other people are going to get to find out what it's like to be the youngest female as the deputy chief of staff right in the White House. for operations. I wanted to ask, you know, were you nervous? Here you're coming from in Washington, D.C. is such a buttoned-up environment. And judgy. And and extraordinarily judgmental. And so I just wanted to ask, you obviously come by your honesty and your accessibility and warmth. You know, it's palpable. So you come by it all honestly yourself. But I, I wanted to ask what that was like, because that that is not an environment conducive to creativity, never mind candor. No. Well, so the first book, when I wrote the first book, I was very worried about how people would perceive it, right? Because I do think that living in D.C., people, mostly I think people saw me as David Crone's wife. You know, yes. like and I just was, for for some listeners, David Crone is 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 a highly successful, um, highly, <laughs> highly successful former chief of staff to Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Yes. Um, and so I was the quiet one because, you know, part of part of our whole vibe in the Obama White House, for the most part, was like, we're here to serve. The yes. story, it's not our story. Yes. It's about the American people. It's about Barack Obama and Michelle. It's not about us. And so I didn't go to parties. Well, mostly I feel like you'll appreciate this. You know, there's the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which is basically no more because Donald yes. Trump stabbed it in the face. But and, and in fairness, Obama's uh, last one, he was so good. I was like, so this is his stand-up special, right? Please, right. Please make sure this is his last one because he's so good. That's how that he I'm got his skill at Netflix. <laughs> <It's amazing. laughs> JK, JK. Um, but no. And so my first time going was with this reporter, Lynn Sweet, from the Chicago Sun-Times. And I was so nervous that I would say something wrong yeah. that I was like mute at the table. And she finally turns to me. She has like no filter. She's like, how drunk are you? And I was like, Lynn, I haven't had one drink all night. She's like, well, you're acting so strange. And I'm like, I'm just afraid I'm going to say something wrong. So, like, that was my vibe in D.C. 
Right. And I think that if I physically had lived in D.C. when I was writing this book, it wouldn't or the first book, it wouldn't have come out well. Okay, I want to start out with being a driver and what that was like for Bernie Sanders. I love that you worked for Bernie Sanders and I wanted to hear the burn got me into politics. So I was a student at the University of Vermont and Burlington is super political. And and when I say super political, I mean, I I, my roommates and I cannot remember if it was Howard Dean or Bernie Sanders that registered us to vote our freshman year. And so because they would go dorm to dorm and register everybody. And so I was a French major with a minor in Japanese and I was very happy with that and I thought I was very interesting and I liked my classes my people and then um but I like read about Bernie every day and I wanted to stay the summer in Burlington and I was like look if I can have like a real reason for living up here then maybe my parents will be cool with me staying and so I applied for an internship and I got it and when I showed up my first day, I was like, what am I going to be doing? They're like, so Bernie's going to land in about 45 minutes. So can you go pick him up at the airport? And so there I was. In your car? Um, Obviously. My 1988. So it's 1995. In my 1988 blue Saab 900S. I know the car. Air conditioning. Not so much. Roof. You know, like the, You know how you'd see the Saabs with like the cloth? Blowing yes. in the wind. That was mine. I like staple it back up. Didn't care. Love the car. Get And Bernie would. The thing that was great about Bernie is that like, you know how sometimes when you do an internship, you kind of get infantilized. Yes. And it's like, okay, so welcome. That's not what it was. I pick Bernie up. He's like, what's happening? What happened while I was on the plane? You know, what was the news? What happened in the Times today? Did you read the Rutland Herald? Like, and so I really, I felt a lot like, do you remember when Laura Ingalls gets her teaching certificate on Little House on the Prairie? I, I read the entire series. I did not watch it. This is how I cope with Donald Trump. <laughs> Little House is back on Amazon, and I started at the beginning. <laughs> and so anyway, but Laura was always like this eager beaver, right? And so I was the eager beaver of Burlington, Vermont. I yeah. got up early. I went to the smoke shop. I got all the newspapers just because whatever wow. anybody wanted to ask me, I wanted to be able to participate in the conversation. And it served me really well because we'd be sitting in these meetings and I'd be like, I would casually drop some information about the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. And they'd be like, whoa, intern knows a lot. But I did. But I still was very satisfied with doing what my core duties were, which was answering the phone and faxing things. Yes. But when I could get in there. I got in there, but not at the, you know, not at the expense of my core duties. And so at the end of the summer, you know, I was now in his office five days a week. I was volunteering on the campaign at night. I was also babysitting, also uh, a maitre d' at a restaurant. And at the end of the summer, they're like, you are so great. Do you want to come to D.C. next summer? I was like, oh, my God, like jackpot and so then i actually went to school and this is like a quick story for people sure you vermont was was not liberal enough vermont wasn't (laughs) liberal enough so i went to madison wisconsin (laughs) and one of the greatest things about when you are young and just embracing whatever garbage duties you have as like important is i would answer the phone and i saw the phone came up and it was a 608 area code 608 is madison wisconsin and uh, i very cheerfully asked the gentleman on the other line. I was like, are you calling from Madison? And he said, yes, I am. I said, well, I'm going to Madison in a couple weeks. I'm starting as a junior at the university. Turned out that the man on the phone was Ed Garvey, famed 
labor attorney yes. who unionized the NFL Players Association, went on to run for governor, was a huge just progressive advocate in Madison who said, the day you get here, come see me. And he hired me and he paid me for two years. Uh, also helped me get out of a little uh, legal bind I had when oh, I yes. got tagged <laughs> for having a fake ID when I was nearly 21. Talk about really just like sad day at Paul's Club. Paul's Club in Madison, Wisconsin. But um, but no, so you never know, right? And like the thing is, I worry that, that so many people today are just like face down in their phones or just so uptight and serious and can't have humor and aren't thinking about other people that you miss out on the moments when you're driving Bernie Sanders and then making conversation with Ed Garvey and sort of like where that leads you in your life. The next part that I want to talk about is is your work in, in the White House. Yeah. And I want to hear a little bit about how time-consuming, grueling, the stress, because it, you really are on 24-7, and it's not just a cliche. I mean, you'd never know it from looking at these people who are there right now. I mean, one of the funniest text exchanges, because there are several groups of us at the White House who have ongoing text and email chains because we can't separate ourselves from each other, much like we think that, like, President Macron, Angela... <laughs> Merkel. Merkel. Yes. And Justin Trudeau must have something similar going on as like their therapy. But we're all on this text chain. I'm and actually we glad they have each other. I didn't mean to me, interrupt. No, I, I'm glad we have them, to yes. be quite honest. Yes. yes. So we see uh, President Trump's first trip, right? And there's Hope Hicks and Sarah Huckabee. And there's this picture of them all uh, going to the first meeting of the day. And I can't tell you simultaneously yes because we all still watch the news all the time all of these things all these texts are like how did they get up so early they have that kind of makeup on what are they like? we were just laughing because like we were just busted we looked busted all the time because like, we were actually working we were actually working like my favorite story about the cover of the first book Yes. Who thought this was a good idea? Where I'm sitting uh, with President Obama in what is the senior staff cabin of Air Force One. And everyone's just like, I can't believe it. It's like he's sitting next to you. It's like your best friends. I was like, really? Do you know what I see when I look at that picture? And they're like, what? I'm like, I have on Jesus sandals. Those pants are from The Gap. I wore them routinely because they could be washed in the sink of a hotel uh, bathroom. And I hadn't washed my hair in about five days in that picture. But like... That was what it was all about. You know, it wasn't about me looking like a cover girl when I got off the plane. We were all just like hoofing it and doing our thing. And, it, you know, I imagine it's hard for people who have not worked in the White House, myself and probably to fully understand. Um, I can imagine it would be an isolating experience if you did not get along with the people you're working with. I mean, I don't know how you have a choice. I'm not have a choice. Like, I'm very lucky. But if I didn't have it goes to. Because the people are what give you the humor and the camaraderie. And when things are really bad, like if everyone's bummed out, you're not going to get that much stuff done. You need that one person. And it's not always the same person who's like, guys, it's been so much worse than this. Or guys, come on, like this is what we're doing it for. Or someone who just starts telling a joke or a funny story. And you're like, okay, okay, okay. And like you shake it off and you get back to what you're doing. And so like there were little things like my deputy chief cohort, Nancy Ann DeParle, who I was deputy for operations. She was deputy for policy. Nancy Ann is 18 years older than mm -hmm. I am. Uh, she was the uh, Rhodes Scholar, architect of the Affordable Care Act, like one of the most brilliant. And when we became deputies together, I was like, girl, just so you know, I know you're better than me. And I don't want you to think that I think we're equals because I know we're not equals. And she's like, 
we're just different. You're not less. We're just different. And one day, as we're being briefed in into our new jobs and given all the security information, um, we're given our Secret Service code names. And I was like, I don't know how you feel, Nancy. These are like so masculine. And she's like, yeah, I kind of thought the same thing. I was like, well, why don't we get our own code names? And she's like, do you think we could do that? This is the weird, funny shit that happens that nobody talks about unless they're cool enough to not cool enough, but like cool, good enough in their own skin to say that this was a serious conversation we had. So I went to the head of the Secret Service and I said, "Uh, Mr. Parl and I would like different names. And I'm like, um, okay. And we're like, does it have to start with a P? Because all of our our code names all started with P in the 44 administration. And they were like, uh, yeah, we'll come back to you with some options. And so there the two of us were, such serious shit going on. But for five minutes, I was like, do you want to be peppermint, princess, or peaches? <laughs> she was like, I'm from the South, so I'll be peaches. So she was peaches. She goes, I'll pay you money if you be princess. So the and the funny thing, like, is when so when Secret Service is calling your name, they would have to, when they're calling over the radios, they'd have to see like Roger, Roger, we have princess. And so we knew that we couldn't, that if anyone was gonna be princess, it would have to be Sasha or Malia. So I went with Popsicle. And when it was hot out, they'd go, We have Popsicle, she's melting. Amazing. I Amazing. Know. Can you talk a little bit about the physical stress and the challenge of knowing when to be honest about what one is going through? Yeah. I mean, the physical stress is not a joke. Um, I look back. It wasn't that long ago. I was looking for some pictures of the book. And Pete Souza, everybody knows America's favorite photographer, he had sent me some photos. And I was like, why did he send me this one? I'm not even in it. And then I realized I was. I was just so thin that I didn't recognize wow. myself. And it had been like a particularly long stretch. I mean, people forget, you know, Donald Trump, all this drama is so self-created but feels so much more intense than like what we were going through. But we had Deepwater Horizon. We had tornadoes. We had hurricanes. We had all kinds of bad shit happening all the time. And sometimes it's like you get done with one thing. You're like, oh, wow, the servers for healthcare.gov just crashed. Right. Right. Let that let that be your conundrum. Just like so there I was. I was so thin. I would have problems with stress. So back then I did smoke and I quit as soon as. Congratulations. That's hard. Yeah. Well, I had to. I mean, it's so bad for you. It is. But I'm happy you did quit. I did. I had (laughs) I, I quit. But it's one of those things where you realize you're like, why do I love it so much? And it turned out for me all those years, it was the five minutes you take to go outside, breathe fresh air that you cloud with the fiberglass you put in your lungs and take a moment for yourself. And you think some thoughts and you're like, okay, what do I really have to get done before I leave today? Okay. And then I would have one cigarette when I got home that was the, whoo, I made it. Yes. I made it. I'm just going to sit here on M Street and look at the traffic and just feel my life. But you also had had fatigue. I mean, I want to just set up. Oh, no, I was super... I mean, I probably slept, you know, four hours a night, maybe. You know, that's like getting, and that's, and, I got and into traveling bed. traveling all over the world. I don't mean to interrupt you. But, no. But just to add, to, to emphasize that you were traveling all over the world, sleeping on the floor of a plane, we because you did. need to be prepared to work the next morning, we did. whether you're in Japan or, or, or Guadalampur. Or Tanzania or wherever you are. And what no one realizes is that if you're on the trip, mostly because nobody sees it anymore, is that if you were on a trip for, you know, usually what was somewhere between five and, and nine days, right, you'd, you'd go because... If you're going to go, we'd hit a couple countries every time. 
you get back at, you know, midnight on a Sunday, you're still expected at the senior staff meeting at 7 o'clock the next day. It's not like, hey, gang, I'm just going to sleep in tomorrow and I'll just like see you around lunchtime. No, 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 that's not how it went. We're going to take a break from the episode so I can tell you a little bit about our sponsor. Can you talk a little bit about your identity after leaving this job? And I'm just going to preface, I I did a series for The Atlantic called Exit Interview. Mm -hmm. And one of the people I interviewed was this incredible hospice nurse. I didn't understand that not all hospice nurses are, hospice chaplain, excuse me. She was a hospice chaplain who counseled the dying. I didn't know that not all hospice chaplains do this. She had MS. She lost a kid. And when she lost her job and wasn't able to even say goodbye to the people she was working with, she articulated it as a disenfranchised grief that she yeah. felt. And I love using her as an example. And everyone in the series is is worth listening to. But but particularly because she's seen it all. And yet she still considered losing and leaving this job. Yeah. As a, a form of grief. It, it definitely was. And that was another part of why I wanted to write both books is that um, nobody talks about it. Yes. And, you know, the, the truth is, if you are a good employee, which I was, the mission of the government, the American people, it's not connected to one person, right? It has zero to do with me. And so our theory was that, our operating theory was that, you know, all of our departments should be run as if we were to get hit by a bus the next day and nothing would skip a beat, right? It would all be fine. And of course, I held myself to that standard. I held all the people who reported to me to that standard. So emotionally, like intellectually and emotionally, like when you're when you are sitting there, I was in my office for the last day and, you know, life's going on, but you've already been phased out of some stuff, right? Because you've handed things over and uh, the, the security guys come in. You know, the ones that r- routinely uh, denied Jared his clearance. And they do what's called a readout. They read you out. And they make it very clear to you that anything you've learned, you know, with the TSSCI clearance that I had, yeah. top secret, secure compartmentalized information, which is the highest uh, that there is, that uh, you cannot share it. It's all this stuff, right? And so I'm handing over these, all of my documents and my badge, right? You don't get to keep your White House badge. You have to have pass it over. And um, I start sobbing. And I'm like, you know what? I bet this happens to you guys all the time. Like, I bet it happens all the time. And they're like, uh, ma'am, no, actually, it's never happened before. And I was like, you just could have kept that to yourself. Why did you have to tell me? Absolutely. I'm the only. In in entertainment, you know, in, in theater, when, when people end a run of a show, they go through a depression. And people talk about it all the time because it it's, is. But people don't. It's like they. It's like public service. Like, you shouldn't. This shouldn't happen. And so I, like, really deep dived into a real depression. I felt completely like, who am I? You know, when I would call a cabinet secretary and they'd pick up. Yes. Right. OK. And then I go to another job and. You know, I'm like, hey, can someone show me how to use the copy machine? And people are like, go fuck yourself. I was like, wow, it's really gone off a cliff, haven't I? You know, and you're like, okay. And you tell yourself, you know, you go to the unisex stall that you you can close the door on. And you're like, you are special. You have done a lot in your life. This is just like, don't take this personally. It's just a different work environment. Like I had to really pump myself up a lot in those years after because we just also inter- interacted with each other on such a level of respect yes. that 
that when you go into a new place, see, to me, I try, well, Dan Pfeiffer will tell you, if asked, that I always disliked someone before I liked them, never to their face. I'd go into his office and be like, I mean, why do you think he's here? <laughs> like, I don't think I like him. I think he's rude. I don't even think he's that smart. And then two weeks later, Pfeiffer would email me and be like, oh, I saw you at lunch with so-and-so. I'm like, oh, my God, he's so smart and nice. I don't know what you're talking about. But that's I'm always a little suspicious, right? So I understand if someone feels that way towards me. I assume people feel that way towards me. Interesting. But I always got over it after two weeks yes. and would be like nice to someone. After two weeks, I don't really feel like I should have to prove myself to you anymore. Like I'm a nice, smart, hardworking person with good ideas. And so when people don't warm to that, you start being like, is it them or is it me? I don't think it's me. How did you maintain your confidence? Do you feel more confident now? Oh, I'm so much more confident now. How, how much is that due to age? How much is that due to the fact that you can look back and be like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe what I did? You know, the gang, the gang and I, we talk about this all the time, that we wished at the time we had given ourselves more credit, that we had stopped to enjoy a little bit more, that we had, you know, I, I mean, we were a very grateful group, every single one of us, uh, to have had the experience. And and the, th- the person who was the best about that was President Obama, because when we would go someplace that was just really dope, like Cairo, he would say in the middle of the planning process, because I would go, you know, like a month out, two months out, start talking to him about some of these foreign trips we'd be taking. And he said, uh, we're seeing the pyramids, correct? And I was like, well, we're going to have to see if timing permit. He's like, I'm sorry. I think you misunderstood me. I'm seeing the pyramids. <laughs> and we we're like, OK. And so then we go back, you know, about two weeks before the trip. And we're talking about the logistics of, you know, going in and seeing the pyramids. Now the head of antiquities is going to take him on the tour. And he's just so stoked. And then he said, um, I said, you know, and these are the people who go with you. And he goes, well, what about everybody else? And he's like, what about you? I was like, well, no, like not everybody can go with you because it'll take too long and you can't be out at the pyramids that long. Like for security reasons, you're like out in the middle of the desert. And he said, well, I want you to make sure that there's another tour earlier in the day so that everybody else who's with us can also go see the pyramids. So if if he hadn't given us that permission to sort of like take it in and enjoy a little bit um, and like, you know, savor the moment, I think that we would have felt like, That's not what the taxpayers are paying us to do. You know, like we're not here on vacation. Of course, we weren't here on vacation. But like at the same time, so many of these countries, the most important thing to some of them is tourism industry. And so when the American president goes to your pyramids, it's nothing but good. And so he's like, that's it's good for everybody. Like they want to show us the pyramids. Yes. yes. God forbid you be culturally aware as a president um, and and practice diplomacy. Um, I. You wrote this fantastic piece in Politico. You're, you know, you're this very funny and accessible writer, but it was an exceptionally thoughtful piece about Monica Lewinsky. And I just saw The Clinton Affair. I don't know if you've seen this television show by Alex Gibney. Yes, yes, yes. It is so important for people to see because you you see how intelligent uh, Monica is and you also see um, how much she was set up t- to fail. Yeah. And um, I, I just wanted to hear about your friendship with her and, and your feelings about Hillary Clinton and your feelings about Bill Clinton. <laughs> wow, and, you know, just we, like that, you know. Matt. <laughs> no, look, look, here's the thing that, that dis- like, becoming friends with Monica sort of, you know, as we were coasting into this 20th anniversary, right, of impeachment, it just had me thinking so many different things. And, like, so many things converged, right, because... 
along with the 20th, along with when all of impeachment was happening, was also like the second to last and last seasons of 90210. Yes. Okay. And so there was a lot of like group television watching in my one bedroom apartment with three other roommates. This is when you were living on Prince and Thompson? On Prince and Thompson. And those were those were our appointment viewings, right? 90210. And we would watch uh, the nightly news and we would watch whatever hearing was being whatever part of the hearing was being televised. And I thought about it because we talk about Twitter now and how everyone can just have these hot takes all the time and how, you know, how different would it be if Monica's story were happening now? Like, how different would the response be? Like, there'd be like a Twitter army behind her. And I started thinking about, you know, 1998, 99, 2000. And it's like, on the one hand, I said, yeah, you know, but you got the news straight every night, you know, just the facts, nothing but the facts. The same time. It was told by Dan Rather, Tom Brokaw, Peter Jennings, Ted Koppel, a lot of white middle-aged men. Some who would later be accused. Uh, some who, of sexual you know, harassment. not around. Not lower. Sorry. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and the, the difference and sort of the, the, the needle we have to thread, the difference between that straight point of viewless reporting, which did Monica no favors, and then like the hot take generation, you know, like where is the middle ground? And so I started thinking about all this and Monica and I had become friends in like a very like random email chain. Right. And she's like, I loved your book. And I was like, I love you. And, you know, one I, of the, I'm going to interrupt for one second and encourage people to see her her TED talk, by the her way, TED about talk, shame and bullying. That's I mean, and talk about just someone who was like just bullied. I mean, bullied and cyber stalked and shamed and like and here she is she's just like you know what pay it forward i'm gonna help i'm gonna help it not happen to you and if there is ever anything that you know brings me a little bit of joy it's that you know not that long ago uh my mom my mom was a big bernie supporter and uh like multiple bernie bumper stickers and, uh, you know, I never really, you know, thought much of it. And she just she's like super hardcore for Bernie. And then one day we're together and I'm texting with Monica and my mom's like, who are you texting with? I said, oh, Ma, it's, Ma, it's Monica. She's like, Monica. I go, Monica Lewinsky. <gasps> you know, Monica? I said, yeah, Ma. And she just looked at me and she goes, she was just a baby. That's right. She said she was your age. She was just a baby. And that I think that for my mom like that was just it she didn't see monica any other way except that in her mind monica had a university of vermont t-shirt on and she was just me right and and that is the empathy that was lacking through that entire process i wanted to talk to you though a little bit about um whether you might return to politics and you know um whether you might return to politics don't know. That's the truth. Okay. That is the honest answer. You know, I think that I hoped not to when I left the White House. Yeah. I said, you know, this is great. You know, because there's nothing worse than like the hangers on, the people who can't move past it. We've all seen them. They show back up. They're retreads. You're like, wait a minute. What administration are you from? And like, why do you think your shit's still relevant? But maybe they're devoting their life to social service. Yeah, there are those people. (laughs) But then there are the other people who just like to be close to power. Yes. And that's not my vibe. I don't really care too much about power. Um, I do think that I have a skill, 
you know very I, much. I think that I have um, multiple skills, I have yeah. I have a, enough skill skills that when you knit them together could really be helpful to someone um, I would serve I would probably help a campaign if I felt that I was genuinely needed you know not just like hey I don't know if you saw me I wrote some books and I work for Barack Obama so I'm here but if like I thought there was a void that needed filling I would probably do it Alyssa Mastermonico, thank you so much for being on Employee of the Month. I'm so proud to be Employee of the Month. Such a delight to speak with Alyssa Mastermonico. Check out her books, So Here's the Thing, notes on growing up, getting older, and trusting your gut, as well as who thought this was a good idea. And coming up, the Emmy Award-winning writer and actor Peter Gross. I can't articulate what a cathartic experience it is to watch him either on The President Show or um, Late Show with Stephen Colbert. We get to talk about all that and more. Here's my conversation with Peter Gross. I am so delighted to be sitting with one of my favorite performers. I've been watching you on stage and on the big screen for a long time. Uh, thank you for being an employee sure. of the month. How does it feel? It feels good. I've actually never been a literal employee of the month, so <laughs> this is my first time. <laughs> um, this is your second major award after winning an Emmy. Yes. it was. Uh, I wish I won them in the opposite order. Employee of the month first. <laughs> And then an Emmy. Because uh, this automatically feels like a letdown. <laughs> no, it just, it, it actually has been, a, no, it's not a letdown at all. Um, you, no, can, yeah. you, you can hang this in your bathroom and not worry about someone stealing it. That's true. I actually do. My wife is much more into like displaying the uh, Emmys. I have two Writers Guild Awards also. And she likes to like put them in. We've moved a trillion times in the last like 10 years. And so she always finds like, this is a good place to like display these. And um, that's kind of nice. See, I would actually display my Emmy in the bathroom so that people, when they wash their hands, can give their speech. Oh, that's a good idea. And they can take as long as they want. (laughs) (laughs) Or you just have a sign in the mirror that says, wrap it up. Um, I want to start out, your dad, I believe, is a first-generation immigrant from Mm -hmm. Romania. He is. Is That's correct. Um, So I often joke that uh, stand-ups weren't loved enough by their parents and (laughs) improvisers were loved a little too much. That's very good. Uh, I guess I was in the love too much part. <laughs> I came up as an improviser. <laughs> That's really astute. See, you're using your PhD even though you didn't finish it. <laughs> That's very funny. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely in the improv camp. Definitely came up with... I mean, I came up with other people. Stand-ups come up with other people also. But it's not the same. It's I mean, not the same. Y- y- I really want to hear about it because I sort of envy the collaborative nature that it seems like you guys have, at least yeah. on stage. And you grew up at – I mean, you were doing – so you were at Northwestern and then you were at Second City and, and you know, boom. I, w- I want to hear everything sure. about your experience, but I just wanted to contextualize it for people who are not in comedy since this show is about careers. Sure. Um, and just the fact that you were – you came up – you know, one class below Katherine Hahn, one class above Zach Braff, right. uh, Seth Meyers, of course, you work with a lot. But, you know, Tina Fey, Rachel Dratch, uh, Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert were all right above you. Mm-hmm. So that means that you guys were performing at the same time. Yeah. I mean, my first uh, Second City show that I ever saw was uh, Steve Carell, uh, Stephen Colbert, Paul Dinello, um I missed Amy Sedaris by like one review, which is a kind of a bummer. But... Being at Second City and eventually working there, I would go back and watch, you know, old videos of her performing and read old scripts and and stuff. Um, but 
I definitely like grew in the soil that was like the, you know, the overturned churning. Uh, um, this is a horrible metaphor, but it, it makes sense in my head, but I can't describe it. I, I, I grew in the soil that had been mulched <laughs> with the remains of people like Stephen Colbert. It sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like the remains as in like rest the, in peace. The death of. No, but the um, it works kind of like that in these sort of comedy schools like you. Um, you get taught by certain people. I was taught by really great people um, at, at I.O. Like I was taught by Matt Besser, who, you know, was one of the UCB founders before they moved to New York. Um, and I was also taught by Susan Messing, who's like this, you know, brilliant woman who's still teaching in Chicago. Um, but like I was I would understudy people like Kevin Dorff, who's this great you know, uh, writer, actor, comedian uh, in Chicago. And he was in the shows with Tina and Rachel and Scott adds it. And so like, I got to perform with Rachel a bunch, um, but I would watch Tina and, and adds it. And, and like, just, I could go on naming a million people, Amy, that I, like you would just watch them and they were your teachers, whether they were not, you know, you not, weren't sitting in a class with them. I remember going to see shows at Improv Olympic on Saturday nights where there were two house teams who were performing, and in the eight o'clock show, it would be like Inside Vladimir, which was Amy and Tina, and then like six supporting actor guys <laughs> who were all great. They were all like fine, but Amy and Tina were just like the complete stars of this thing. And then there's another team with like uh, Stephanie Weir and Bob Dassey and these like other great people. And then like the at the ten thirty show, they would switch the order, and the the other team would go first, and the other one would go second. And he would just sit there, and I got him for free, and I would just sit and watch for, you know, would sit there. For, I'd spend like four hours watching, you know, <laughs> improv shows, and then like the, the time in between. Um, and that's how I grew in the soil <laughs> that was churned with the remains of Amy Poehler. <laughs> um, you also lived with people who would later become your bosses. And I'm yep. just I'm just curious what that experience was like that you were all working together and also living together. Yeah, I mean, uh, Seth Myers, I went to college with him and we were we didn't live together in college, but we I guess we did for like a summer or whatever. But we lived together after college um, and went to this show, Boom Chicago, this American English language comedy theater in Amsterdam, which is like second city, basically, but in in Holland and. I mean, Seth was the best man at my wedding, and I've you know known him for, I guess, more than twenty years now, many more than twenty years. But when he got his show, he asked if like he called me like the day that he, he knew it was official. And I actually still have the voicemail on my phone, and uh, he was like, "If you want to be part of this, I'd love to have you." And um, and it was great. I mean, I wasn't looking to go into. Um, I had already written for Colbert and then stopped and was kind of like, I'm going to go explore other things. But then when he got that show, I was like, I'm going to get back into late night TV writing because it was pretty worth it. And that also a similar experience with Allison Silverman. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Allison and Seth and I all lived together in Amsterdam. And Allison was uh, one of the original, was like the original executive producer of the Colbert Report with Stephen. She was the showrunner of that show for the first, I don't know, like three or four years. And yeah, they both hired me um, to work with them after yeah, after living with them all in this small apartment in Amsterdam. And this is pre-Swiffer, so you were obviously cleaning on your own. We were. We were cleaning on our own a lot. And I have a scar on my hand. This hand is a small half-moon scar that comes from me uh, attacking a mouse with a broom oh, wow. uh, in our apartment in Amsterdam. 
if you can Only can't see it on the comedian Jewish person would <laughs> try to show off the cigars if you were in Nam. <laughs> yes, it's very. If you can picture a thumbnail, it's smaller than that. <laughs> um, Great war ruin yeah, story. Exactly. I mean, I think that happens a lot in uh, in sort of our world. As you are friends with somebody, they get a job, and then they like, we need to hire our our whole group of people, and we're going to turn around and hire our friends and. Sometimes I give people career advice and they want to be like, what? Like, give me like the thing that I should do that ensures that 20 years from now I'll have, you know, some version of a career like you or other people have. And I want to be like, uh, just have your friends be really successful and uh, <laughs> kind of ride them coattails and um, – and, but it, and but follow it's kind the chore wheel, you know, make sure you have a chore wheel when you guys live together. Yes. So don't that, be a jerk roommate. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky in that I, I, I was around a lot of really great people, both uh, who performed before me and were my teachers in the ways that, you know, I mentioned or literally or just figuratively. And uh, people who were around me, like I performed with Jack McBrayer and was, you know, was touring with him at Second City and, you know, did shows with like Ike Barinholtz and Jason Sudeikis. And we created... The two of us, the two of them, Jason, Ike, myself, uh, Bumper Carroll, and uh, who would be the fifth person? I'm not sure. We all created this like improv show called JTS Brown that we took very seriously in Chicago. And like there were a lot of really great people. John Lutz was in it and Dan Back at all. And like there were, um, you know, we, there were, there was a, it was a fertile, fertile time. Um, I want to hear a little bit about the Sonic commercial, which I'm not quite sure what you guys sell, but you've been selling some kind of <laughs> fast of food. Stuff. That's pretty <laughs> much it. Some kind of fast food. Uh, I, we just shot some yesterday. That's where I was. That's what I was in LA for. And how long have you been doing this commercial? And how much money have you guys earned? We have been doing it for 17 years since the the first like few weeks of 2002. We did our first commercial in January, and we have earned at this point. Fifty-seven dollars. Is that right? No. That is, yeah. I don't know how much it's been. It's been a lot. It's some the 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 easier, like more digestible thing to say is like people are like, how many spots have you done in seventeen years? And uh, I don't know the number of spots, but it's it's like over two hundred or something like that. So I want to go, go back in time a little bit to talk about writing, and then we're going to talk about acting sure. because um, you were in a, a play at the um, Lincoln Center Theater, LCT3, mm-hmm. um, which we'll, we'll talk about after after writing, if that's okay. Of course. Um, Colbert Report, I understand that you applied several times. I did. I submitted to the Colbert Report three times, and that was after submitting to The Daily Show five times. This makes me feel so much better. I wish that I had continued. Oh, yeah. Instead well, of being like, I'm rejected. I guess I suck. <laughs> All right. That's the end of that. It's uh, that is that's a that is a piece of advice that I would give to people. I mean, it's pretty comedy industry specific. It's hard to tell somebody who's like, I want to work for you know, uh, this like magazine or like uh, you know this tech company or whatever in like sort of the real world. Like, just keep applying to that one place, and eventually, like they might take you. Like that probably isn't how it works. But specifically, in the comedy writing world, you get better at writing these packets because the packets are. They say, like, give us material that we would have on our show. So it's specific to that thing. And it's also like, hey, you have a week to write some, like, for The Daily Show. It was hard. It was like, write five oh, yeah. Daily Show, top of show stories in a week. You can pick whatever you want. And this was before TiVo and stuff. So I was, like, looking through the newspaper at, like, oh, here's a quote. So I could write a joke off the quote. Because all the jokes on those shows are, like, here's the quote. We show you this thing. And then we, you write the joke off of it. It's 
it's not easy, and but it's easy in the fact that like this is the technical setup. And so many episodes have passed, so that if you couldn't watch every single one, you're not sure if, if they've already done it. And yeah, you know. Yeah, and then like how they did it, and like what was their angle or their take on it. So yeah, I did that five times, basically once a year from like 2000 to 2005 or 2001 to 2005. And then um, when the Colbert Report started, I kind of started submitting to that and then eventually got into that. So persistence is a great thing to have. <laughs> the other thing that I found remarkable about you is that you were asking yourself, do I want to do this? And I'd, I'd love if you could share the story of finding out that you got a job on the Colbert Report because I really love that you were like, do I want to do this? Yeah. So uh, as I said, I, Allison was a good friend of mine and she had she was in New York working on it. And I had just um, – I had stopped working at Second City in the ETC stage. So I was kind of like a free agent, could do what I wanted. And I've been very fortunate in that I've been doing these Sonic commercials for a while. So I could sort of like – stop doing jobs and then just like know that I was still making money, but like, what am I going to do otherwise? And, uh, I was like, I'm going to start taking this acting class in Chicago. I really wanted to, cause I never took real, you know, acting class, acting classes. You went from high school to Northwestern and then from Northwestern to second city. Yeah. Northwestern to improv. Yeah. Improv Olympic and second city, but second city was a job in Olympic is not a job. Yeah, but you were working right away after um, college. Yeah, with a bunch of restaurants and catering gigs. <laughs> I was not like lucratively working at Second City. Um, that would be a major misrepresentation <laughs> of the way that I live my were, life. You were eating the food 20s. that would be in the Sonic commercials. <laughs> yes. Uh, until you were starring in Sonic commercials. Yeah, and I still keep going. Um, so I was, um, I had uh, said, I'm going to like, I'm going to uh, take an acting class in Chicago and I'm really going to like get into that. And I had just gone to the Aspen Comedy Festival with oh, yeah. uh, Michael O'Brien. We did a two-person show called Misled. And uh, we, like, we didn't set the festival on fire, but we were like, well, we, this was good. Like, we got invited to do this prestigious comedy festival. And I just felt like I had last submitted to the Colbert Report. This was like February or something when we finished Aspen. I, they had last submitted in like the fall. And I just assumed like that sort of ship has sailed. That had been the third time I submitted. I was like, "This, I'm just going to put this in my past. And I had, I was like, I am not going to apply for writing jobs. I don't want to put myself in that position. I really want to like stretch as an actor. And so then I got a call from Allison and she said, um, hey, do you, uh, you know, we're, we, it's taken us a long time, but we're looking at submissions. Like, what do you, what would you think about coming out to work for us? And I thought it was like more like as a friend about like, Hey, what is your interest level in the possibility yeah. of doing this? And I was like, well, I don't know. I have to say, I'm kind of in this mode where I sort of explained where my head was at. And she was like, Oh, okay. Okay. Well, you know, let me know and we'll talk. And, and then I, uh, kind of didn't, I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, it's nice that she's kind of checking in. And then the phone rang like five minutes later, and it was Stephen. And he's like, hey, it's Stephen Colbert. And I was like, oh, hi. And he goes, hey, so Allison, um, uh, she kind of like blew it before. Um, I think what she really was saying is like, we're offering you a job to write on the show. And she wasn't really asking. She was more just sort of telling you like, you, you have this job. Uh, and I was like, oh, okay, well, I, I do, I, yeah. I do really, I, I do need to think about it. Just give me, because I was still like <clears throat> shocked. I was very sure of what I wanted to do and then very shocked. So there was no comfortable place yeah. to, to land. 
and uh, and then like my my wife was like, "What? <laughs> What's going on?" <laughs> and uh, so I told her. I was like, "So I uh, Stephen just basically said you you actually have this job that you thought was like a theoretical thing." And you were on your way to an improv I show. I was going to an improv show, and then I was like, <laughs> "To doing perform, the, just like doing the improv, yeah, not to watch." <laughs> Uh, and then I went and did the show at the Annoyance with uh, uh, the Annoyance Theater in Chicago, <clears throat> and uh, was completely not present and not you know like it was I don't remember a single thing that happened. And then talked to my wife afterwards, and she was like, "This is we both agree that it was a great opportunity." And then I took it. Um, so it was. It took me a second, and uh, but I had to be sure because uh, I really that I had. Let it go. Like if you submit to it, you apply to any job, and six months pass, you you're not still thinking about that job. Especially when it's one that, I mean, I just can't imagine. The Colbert Report was such a phenomenal show, and so to be rejected, also, it's so painful versus yeah. a show you didn't care about. So I can right. also see like pushing it aside after three times. Yes, it was definitely a um, defense mechanism to put it in the rearview mirror. Yeah. And 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 like a legitimate amount of time had passed. But I had tried to put it in, my, in the rearview mirror like in October after having submitted in September and not heard anything. Uh, so, yeah, it was it was an odd uh, an odd experience, but ultimately it was I mean that as you say, it was a phenomenal show. I can't I can only take credit for stuff that happened after the first year and a half. They definitely had uh, they it was incredible. But there was yeah, that that I did so many amazing things through that show. I got to go to Iraq and perform in a USO show for, you know, all these troops. And um, it was, we won two Emmys, two Writers Guild Awards. We won a Peabody, which is like a crazy thing that you don't expect that you're going to be a part of. And Stephen was a great person to work for. We did a lot of like, you know, we said a lot of really interesting things. Uh, I think that show kind of, meant something to a lot of people at a certain time. It really was a special place to work. So. And you continue to work with Stephen. You um, got to play um, someone who I'm sure you admire almost <laughs> as much as I do, Stephen Miller. <laughs> yes. Yes, I have to do his podcast after this, <laughs> if that's okay. It's just like we just he just screams about uh, foreigners the entire time. <laughs> how much he hates immigrants and how yeah. much they've been taking his jobs. He had a very hard childhood. I think he was in Brentwood or yes. Beverly Hills. I can't he went remember. To, um, well, he grew up an asshole. And so it was very <laughs> difficult for him. Uh, and I think, you know, that's like a group that's kind of marginalized and not represented. And now they are. They're overrepresented in this current administration. <laughs> they've really taken over. Um, I want to speak with you about acting because... Well, first, actually, in terms of improv, I was mm -hmm. just curious. Like, you perform a lot with, you know, John Lutz, for example, who people may recognize from from Thirty Rock, amongst other things. But yep. you get to know each other so well when you've been performing for years and years and years. Yes. Do you have to invigorate the? I yeah, don't know like the chemistry. Yeah, because you like know where the other person's going to go, joke wise, or or that kind of stuff. I think maybe sometimes, but I think in. Specifically with John. What are the ahead. ways you keep the magic alive <laughs> when improvising? Well, I think it's very important to make eye contact and to just and to leave everything negative at the door, <laughs> and to make sure that you are there and present with the person that you're going to be performing this sex act for 45 minutes in front of an audience with. While dressed. Um, oh, yeah. uh, although, it, I mean, I think all of those things, even though I said them in a joking manner, are true. <laughs> um, 
I think John, with John specifically, he does like, and I'm sure I do. Like you, sort of structurally do the same things. Like you tend to go to like he will if we're in like a very serious moment where there's like two because we will play multiple characters on stage in the same scene because it's only the two of us. So we'll build out a scene with eight people and we'll just jump around and play a character that someone else had started. So if we're in a scene and let's say we're at a restaurant and like, um, you know, it's just the two of us and it's kind of not serious, but it's like a, you know, a grounded sort of moment where, and it's maybe something serious is going on and it's for the, the subject matter. If the waiter comes over, he'll play the waiter as like, hello, can I help you? And uh, I know that something like that is going to happen, but I never know exactly what it's going to be. So, but that's why I enjoy performing with him because there is, I know there will be something that is Lutzian that is going to appear. And I just, I'm like all in on whatever the Lutzian thing happens to be for that day. You have the security of knowing that you can depend on this person as as a scene partner, as a teammate. Um, And then you also have that element of surprise. Yes. Very much so. And you talked earlier about, like, the difference between stand-ups and improvisers. And I think, I mean, I, I did not, uh, like, earn my comedy education as a stand-up. But I think they are just naturally, they're just m- much more inward-focused on, and worried about how they are going to uh, hone their jokes, their performance style, um, how they compare themselves to someone who is, like, you know, has the same career trajectory as them, or how to differentiate yourself. Like your whole thing is differentiating yourself as a stand-up in this thing, your material. And with improv, you're just if you do just if you do only that, you will fail very miserably because you're not you're not gonna be good at the the act of improvising, which is just inherently like paying attention to someone else. And if everyone's selfish and everyone has to like you know, work on their own thing, but um, it's just, it's apples and oranges. I mean, it's you can be similar types of people, but the act of what you're doing could not be more different. It's a great segue because, yes, you have to stand out enough so that yes. you're not just another white dude. Yeah, especially for white dudes. Although back in the day, it was like <laughs> white dudes were a hot commodity. Everybody <laughs> wanted one. Where were you going to find one? Except everywhere. <laughs> um, but I was going to say with acting, you go from being one of the most famous improvisers within the improv world. You know, you're, in Chicago. In Chicago Maybe. and in New York. Okay. Um, and then you go into acting and you, you, know, you did this play, which is a really serious play, um, The Thing About Jake, mm-hmm. at Lincoln Center Theater. And I, I just wanted to hear about your transition because it is a very different world. Yeah. Um, I think I thought I was very unprepared for a kid like Jake. And I turned out to be a little bit more prepared than I thought. I thought it was like 0% prepared. Um, first of all, just like auditioning for a play is like auditioning for any other part of thing that you might, you get your lines, you memorize them, except for the part that I did not realize, which was after <clears throat> my first audition, uh, they were like, so he did a good job. We want to call him back. Um, he really needs to just memorize the actual lines <laughs> because well- a lot of auditions that, that, people have not just like comedy auditions and improvisers is like you don't have to memorize it word for word they want you to like embody the character like do your version of the thing but you don't have to get it word for word you will on the day of but and you may get it 
two hours before, if you're lucky, a day before exactly. the audition. So yeah. you, you all, and, and may have multiple auditions. You may have be on a job right now, either yeah. acting or writing. So p- part of that also is that it's a lot to ask of someone. It is. And I think it's way more forgiving. Whereas in plays, I mean, people who write movies and TVs care about their words as, as well. But playwrights really care. They've gone through a lot to get to that place. And it's just not the way it's done. You're supposed to, you know, stick to it. I mean, it's the reason why I just saw King Lear. And there's a lot of, like, blocking and things that go on that are different and staging and it's kind of modern. But they're not, like, dicking around with, <laughs> you know, this 400-year-old text. I mean, like, I don't think we should say that thing. I just feel like Shakespeare didn't really get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, see, that's the way things were, but they're not really like that now. Um, so that was kind of uh, a surprise. But then I quickly was like, okay, yes, I'm going to memorize every word. Um, but then I, you know, I was prepared for, like, the rehearsal process. Because at Second City, you know, you're everything is broken up into sketches, but you're still rehearsing and working on things and honing them and showing it to an audience and getting notes. And so all of those parts, I was like, oh, actually, I do know how to do this part of it, which is, you know how to be an actor. You know how to, like... And you don't think about it that way. But if you've ever done even any sketch show, if somebody's doing a sketch show at a small theater in any city, if you have a director who's coming back afterwards and giving you notes, and then they watch the next performance and you have to adjust to that, then that's that's what being in a play is. It's just one long thing and it was more sustained. And it just it took an intense amount of focus um, and a lot of my time. And I realized that I needed to just um, have like a, an emotional focus because the play was particularly uh, emotional. There were like many scenes that were just between myself and Carla Gugino, who was playing my wife, that were um, just really intense. And there were things that like we didn't run one scene in particular too often because we didn't want to like wear it down to um, like the, the nubs and like have it not be still kind of vibrant because it needed to be very emotional and real and not pat or rote when it was in performance. Well, um, and it's about, you know, a, a child and, and questioning gender bending and yeah. everything about marriage and the person who you – we want to be our best selves, but how are we actually? Yeah. And, and having that unfold in real time as a couple in trying to figure out um, – who we are going to be as parents when our child isn't as we expected our child was going to be. Totally. And it it's it's a great uh it's a really fantastic play and it's um it's just so well written and directed and everybody in it was great and it um but yeah, it it uh I guess I don't know. I think I always liked the I was a straight man a lot in a lot of things that I've done. So in doing that, you kind of have to commit to like some realistic emotional state even if you're in a sketch you know you're in like some little four minute sketch that people are watching drunk at second city on a saturday night like the crazy person can't get away with being crazy unless the straight person is like really locked in and dialed in so i think that was the other thing that i had done is like i had actually practiced being dialed into something for a long time and so i think in that way i kind of had 
like some version of like acting training, even though it was like masquerading as just being a straight man to other people's funny bits. Well, and you've also played like a celebrity chef character. You have done some over-the-top yes. hilarious yeah, characters. Yeah, that's true. And in those cases, I don't connect to anything real. <laughs> <laughs> but they're still funny. Yeah. Um, okay, so, well, you got to be Sydney. Yes. On Veep for many, many years yes. with probably one of the greatest, I would say, you know, comedy creators. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved In the Loop. Did you oh, see yes, that? I loved yeah, Armando's incredible. Armando Iannucci. I'm sure you do meet him or you probably already yeah. know him. Um, my dad worked for Carter and then Obama, and he watches In the Loop every month. Oh, really? Yeah. That's so funny. So, just anyway, <laughs> what was that experience like? It was incredible. I mean, <clears throat> I was living in Los Angeles for a couple years, and I lived there. Enjoying the smog. Yeah. Actually, we, they, we kind of moved because my wife like, and son had, like, I like to say like they had like an allergic reaction to LA where they were like, I, my wife was like, I can't breathe when, when we're here. And I think this is not like a long-term place for us. I was not meaning to be glib, but it is it is a surreal experience because when you first either visit or move there and you're like, God, these sunsets are so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> the purple is just so gorgeous. And it's, it's like- It's almost like there's stuff in the air that the <laughs> sun is bouncing the light off of. It's really strange. Yeah. yeah. Um, so while, while I was living there, uh, I, uh, you know, had auditions for lots of things, and one of them was Veep and got that part. And uh, I had known Armando because, um, or um, Armando, as Excuse he likes me. to I apologize. pronounce Armando. his own name. Well, Armando. It's, it's, it's not even that. It's, I think it's the Scottish thing. He, it's like, it's Armando because... No, I, you guys got it. I got it. Yeah. Because that's how he pronounces I'm it. making him Spanish. And everyone else just says Armando because... Um, but I met him like my that. apologies. It's because I've only read his <laughs> lo, name. Lo siento. <laughs> but I even feel though like... it's Italian and not not Spanish. <laughs> I love the last um, episode of Sopranos when he says like yeets. Or, oh yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah, I just yeats. did that. Where I completely <laughs> botched his name. My apologies. I also didn't fully articulate the proper name of the play. The Jake. Uh, I, I think oh, I said the like thing that. about Jake instead of a kid like. Yeah. Jake. Well, that's like. Uh, wasn't there like the thing about Alex or something like that? I want to encourage everyone who's listening to this to please write a letter um, to the editor of the New York <laughs> Times to complain about this. Go on. We're talking about Veep and your experience. Uh, so I had met Armando. Iannucci the spring before because uh, he wrote a really great show called Time Trumpet that was on in the, in the UK and then Comedy Central wanted to do it here and myself and uh, Laura Kraft who also worked at Colbert yeah. Laura was hired to be like the showrunner and, and uh, help Armando adapt the show for America and then Laura and I basically wound up writing it together she hired me to do it there's another person who I worked with who asked me to work under them uh, so I met him through that and then, yeah, it was like a few months later or something, I was auditioning for him, which was great that I had already known him because it would have been so intimidating. He's not an intimidating guy. He's like pretty much the sweetest. He's like not that tall, very sweet, um, super unintimidating. But Julia Louis-Dreyfus was also in the room. But she's also not like naturally intimidating, but yeah. it was just intimidating. And got to improvise in the audition. It was like, here's the character, here's the lines. This is like the smarmy oil bi- industry lobbyist. And then uh, um, I was told, like, oh, you guys might improvise or something afterwards. And then they were like, okay, so do your scenes done and read it with Julia. And then, like, okay, put this down. And then now, like, so she's the vice president and you're this oil industry lobbyist and you run into her in the hall. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so then improvised with her in the audition. And I think, I think, you know, what was good was because I had the 
the script, I knew like what their thoughts were for this person. So I was able to kind of improvise off of like this general mode. And I think I like threatened her about something about her reelection campaign or something like that. And it, you know, kind of went well. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I like just threatened Julia Travis with something. But then that was good. And then I got to work with her and, and uh, all the people on that show are pretty great. And, and it's really fun. Frank Rich and Rachel Axler and all these excellent yeah. writers. Yeah, there's a lot of really great people. And uh, and now even with all this like new, there was like a whole changeover. There was a bunch of new American people. And David Mandel, who ran the show for the last three years, is like another just like the sweetest guy in the world. And it's it's all good people. It's it's no joke. It's great to hear. A lot of shows suck. And <laughs> they might be funny. A lot of shows you like nobody likes working on them and unfortunately that's that's the case and that is not the case with those people they really love each other it's good you've had a rare ride i would say you know with yeah. both with both colbert and veep yeah and seth too like i mean it's not just yes. the fact that i like seth like seth has he is like the best boss everybody i mean people have issues with him that i might not know about but generally people like working there it's a, it's a fun show he does not he pushes people to do a good show, but he's not a tyrant. Like, I have been very lucky to work on good shows, I will say. To the point where there's an, a new film coming out um, that Mindy Kaling created, Late Night, and yeah. Seth Meyers is, is, you know, does a cameo as himself. Oh, but that's it's funny. Because he's he's so beloved yeah. that he can do this. I, I do hope you will tell his brother, who is an actor, to please wear a helmet because he bikes in Los Angeles, which I find insane. Um, completely relevant and important for everyone listening to this episode. Josh's hair, though, is so gorgeous and, and perfectly coiffed that I feel like it would create a barrier between him and the cement if he was to fall down. Whenever I'm feeling bad about myself, I just think, thank goodness I am not the third sibling in the Myers family. Because <laughs> well, there are, isn't one, so they're fine. <laughs> they're all so <laughs> yeah. attractive in the very stereotypical yeah, yeah, way. <laughs> and they have these like, healthy, happy parents and everything. I'm like, okay, enough already. They do have a great Could family. Great hair up and down the block in that family. Yeah. They got good hair. So you realize that you can't be the third Myers brother because yeah. there are only two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've so, tried. So you're like, I'm going to take on other parts. But you are also leaving this world of late night where you have to write topical jokes. You're also on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me all the time. Right. And to me, I'd be so excited to get a writing job anywhere. But it's also so easy and obvious to me that you burn out easily because you're there, you know, 90 hours a week yeah. and everything is topical. So you have to yeah. write new material all the time. <laughs> you go to acting to get away from that, I imagined. I think so. Um, and then it followed you. Yes. Well, what, what happened was... Uh, I left late night in 2015 after a, a year, roughly a year on the, on the air, but we had some pre-production uh, time that I worked on as well. And it was great to start a show, actually. It was something I'd not done, is to like start a show from scratch to say, like, especially with a late night show, to say, like, so we know what the format is. Here's our host. Um, we can do anything. So ev- just write whatever you think is funny, and then like we'll try a bunch of stuff out. And we tried some dumb things out, and... Um, like pretty soon after I left, he started doing closer look stuff and really locking in on um, political things because the whole country locked in on that. So I kind of missed that. But in, I mean, I would have left anyway because it just wasn't what I really wanted to be doing. But then the whole Trump situation occurred. And then Anthony Atamanik, who does this brilliant Trump impression. Oh, my God. 
along with James Adomian, who did the amazing Bernie impression. And you played Mike Pence. And I played Mike Pence on this show, The President Show, which was Anthony asked me, hey, we're going to, I want to pitch this show about Donald Trump doing a show from the White House, and I want you to help me write it. And and he and Adam Pally, who was the other oh, yeah. creator uh, or other executive producer at the beginning, they were like, you should play Mike Pence. It'd be fun. Like if you were like his sidekick, his Ed McMahon is Mike Pence. And I was like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. And I, you know, this was in the stage of like, let's figure out this show. It's like, well, that'll be a funny thing. And I didn't do like a Mike Pence impression or anything. But then Comedy Central bought it and it was like, okay, well, it's time to make this clearly Jewish guy look like this clearly Midwestern, you know, white walker, <laughs> Mike Pence. And for the um, record, we are we are sitting a kosher distance from one another. Yes, exactly. Mike, Mike Pence, Pence approved. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, if Mike Pence was the, uh, the chaperone at a dance, it would be like... <laughs> 10 yardsticks in between everybody. It'd be like, you couldn't possibly touch the other person at the uh, the prom. Um, and so that turned out to be a combination of writing topical material, but also acting and also kind of like not late night writing necessarily because it wasn't like we, we didn't have a monologue with, you know, like jokes, typical jokes. And so it was like a slight step away from that world. And I feel like it gave me a good opportunity to do a bunch of kind of everything at once. And then I also got to executive produce yeah. and and be the showrunner along with Jason Ross and Christine Nangle. Um and so I got to like head write which I had never done before and and it, it was it was great and uh not great enough for Comedy Central I guess. But uh or America, I'm not really sure. Comedy Central. <laughs> Blame it on them. It's easier. Yeah. But it, it was great. It was awesome and I would, you know, I'm, I would still work with that's um, another place where I think we were good bosses. I think people people liked working for us. And I think it's because I had the, I mean, I had very good mentors. Again, I was growing in the dirt of <laughs> bosses like Seth Meyers and Stephen Colbert. <laughs> but I did, I did learn how to be a, a good boss from a lot of different people, I think. So it's um, been so wonderful to hear about how successful your career has been. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just went to two auditions today, and I don't think I'm going to get either of them. So, and I don't have a TV show anymore. And I think we're, ra- or I think, I think the light is at the end of the tunnel for the Sonic commercials because we are getting way too old for people to watch on TV. So, talk to me in about a year. Um, this has been a pleasure and a privilege. Thank I really you. genuinely hope you will be back. I would love to. Um, and thank you for this duly deserved award. <laughs> How can, I'm thanking you for giving you the duly deserved Employee of the it. Month award. I, I accept, and I would just like that's to... That's all oh, the time we have. <laughs> uh, seeing it says wrap it up. Okay, that's fine. That makes sense. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Peter. <laughs> you bet. I want to thank my guests, Alyssa Mastermonico and Peter Gross. I want to thank Cameron Drews for editing this together. I want to thank all of you for listening and everyone who has worked on Employee of the Month as well as Russ and Daughters and Factory for being our longtime sponsors. Go to employeeofthemonthshow.com. That's employeeofthemonthshow.com to get on the mailing list so we can take you with us since this is our, our final episode with Slate. And I also want to thank Letty Rizzo for creating this theme song. She's been a veteran Employee of the Month show guest. She will be back. Not to worry. And that's it. I'm Katie Lazarus. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter or just stalk me down the street. It won't be creepy. And uh, we will be in touch very, very soon. That's it for Employee of the Month. I'm Katie Lazarus. Have a good one. <laughs>